Thank you, Luke and worship band. Um, if you studied the psalm this, before we come this morning, we can see that the song we just sang is basically a perfect expression of what we're going to look at in detail. So I almost feel like we can all just go home, similar to Hank Shirley's thing this morning for the baby dedication. But thank you, Luke, for that. That was that, and worship band. That was awesome. Um, it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord on this Father's Day. Uh, this is my first Father's Day in which the title, title Father applies to me, and so it's very special to me. Uh, and I've enjoyed getting to be a dad the last four months to Jack, but I must admit that it does come with a, a very weighty responsibility. We fathers have such an important role in our homes, don't we? Uh, God has made it clear in his word that we are to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I'm convinced that when you look at our culture, part of the reason for the lack of unity within the family, and part of the reason for the lack of God-designed family units is, is uh, the father not doing his part to, uh, to, to discipline his children and bring them up and to love his wife well. Um, and so I pray that God would give us all fathers in the room wisdom and grace as we seek to lead our families well in the context of our household. So with that being said, we'll, we'll be in Psalm 41. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn there. Um, and once you get there, you'll notice that at the top heading of the psalm, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. And this serves to remind us of the value of the psalm. You know, it was not just committed to your average musician. It was committed to the choir master or the chief musician, as some of your Bibles may say. And it also serves to inform us as to the author of the psalm who has made known his experience, the basis of this prophetic song. Um, And this is a glorious psalm of David the great king of Israel, the one to whom the the Davidic covenant was given, the one to whom so much of his experience was recorded in Samuel and Chronicles and Psalms, and the one who served as a type of our Lord Jesus to come. And so, so much of what David experienced in this psalm was bitterness, bitterness and anguish and trouble. But as we'll see as we move through, his experience will prove to be an encouragement to us. And so to begin with this morning, let's just read the first 13 verses together so that we can have them fresh on our minds as we dive into each verse. Verse 1, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, uh, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, he restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say... A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. 
By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So if this is your first reading of the psalm, you might feel as though it's hard to see the flow of the psalm, or maybe it's uh, hard to follow the Holy Spirit's train of thought here as he inspired David to write this psalm. But I trust that after we study it here today, you'll have a fresh and renewed understanding of this psalm. So to begin with, how do we break it up? How do we break it up? So in verses one through three, David expresses his initial confidence that God has compassion on the compassionate. And in these three verses, he describes the mercies which are given to those who consider the poor. And this is his initial confidence. But then in verses four through nine, we have the lament described. And in these verses, David considers his own experience of sickness, abuse from his enemies, and treachery from his friend, and pleads to God for deliverance. And finally, in verses 10 through 13, we see David's initial confidence confirmed. In these verses, David is delivered from his troubles, and his initial confidence in God that we saw in verse one through three is just reaffirmed. So, three sections. One through three, David's confidence expressed. Four through nine, David's lament described. And 10 through 13, David's confidence confirmed. So those are the main sections that we'll see as we go through. So to begin with this morning, let's look at David's initial confidence in verse one. Blessed is he who considers the poor. So the idea behind this word poor here does include economic poverty, but it is broader than that. And the Hebrew word uh, has the idea of weak or helpless or destitute. And some of your Bibles may even translate it this way. It's the idea of someone who is so empty of resources that they can no longer really help themselves. And these types of people were often very, very mistreated in David's day. Um, They were often treated as as fugitives and outcasts by the rest of society, and they're they're mistreated in our day as well, but they were often even worse in in that day. Um, And David here describes the blessings that come to the righteous man or woman who, out of love and devotion to the God of Israel, considers the poor. So what does it mean when David says, Uh, blessed are those who consider the poor. What does that mean? If the Lord blesses those who consider the poor, we've got to ask that question. And so what I want to suggest to you is that David knew that his God cared about the poor and the outcast because he knew his Bible. He knew his Old Testament. God, from the very beginning of the giving of the law, all the way back to Moses and his covenant at Sinai, Uh, His chosen people, Israel, were to take care of the poor and the needy and and to make special provisions for the poor. He commanded those in Israel who had resources to have legitimate, tangible compassion on those who had no resources. So for example, in Leviticus 19, uh, God declares a law of gleaning for the people of Israel as a way of uh, ensuring that the poor had their most basic needs met. He says in Leviticus 19, you shall leave the leftover crops for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then it is repeated again in Leviticus 23 and it's reaffirmed in Deuteronomy 24. And in fact, just turn to Deuteronomy 24 really quickly. I want to show you this. Deuteronomy 24 verse 19. Deuteronomy 24 verse 19. Fifth book of the Bible, about two thirds of the way through of the book. 
All right. Listen to it in verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Here it is, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go back over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So in other words, God commanded that at every harvest, his people were to leave some of their produce for the poor, the needy, the widow, the, surge, the sojourner. And he says in verse 19 that if they do this, he will bless them. Um, and I love that it's rooted in the remembrance of Israel's hard service when they were in Egypt. Um, he also makes this provision for the poor and needy. In Leviticus 25, 35, it says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with, with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger or a sojourner, and he shall live with you. So, but beyond that, what groups of people were the ones who were most commonly used as examples of someone who is poor or helpless in the Bible? Anybody? Widows and orphans? Exactly. Um, that, that is the most often example used in the Bible for someone who is poor or helpless. And, and they were often used as a kind of archetype for someone who is, who, who is this way. And, and it doesn't mean that only widows and orphans were poor and helpless, but they are simply used as the most common example for that category of people. And it's really not hard to see why. Um, they were on their own, you know? Um, and like I said earlier, they were treated like outcasts by the rest of society. And let me tell you, God speaks very loudly on this subject. Um, and, and what I'm suggesting to you is that David knew it. David knew it. Um, David knew that God commanded that those who love him, those who would obey him, those who would wish to be characterized as someone after God's own heart, would care for the helpless and the weak and the poor, because God cared for the helpless and the weak and the poor. And God says over and over again that those who do such things will be blessed. It is repeated over and over again in the scripture. So for example, Exodus 22, 22 says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, every third year demanded a special tithe to be collected from every Jew to care for the orphans and the widows. Deuteronomy 27, 19, God demanded justice for the widow and justice for the orphan. Why? Because Psalm 68, 5, write that down. Psalm 68, 5, God, it says this, God is a father to the fatherless and a judge of the widows. So God has a special heart for those people who have great need and widows and orphans fall into that category. Um, and God has compassion on these people, and so he's prescribed commands to his chosen people, Israel, to care for them. And these are just a tiny fraction of the passages that we could look at, and we don't have time to get into them, but just for quickly, Deuteronomy 10, Psalm 146, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 15, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 22, Zechariah 7. I mean, the list goes on and on, and we haven't even made it to the New Testament yet. Um, but while we're talking about the New Testament, surely 
There can be no one else who considered the poor more fully, more substantially, more completely than whom? Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus would always consider the weak, the helpless and the lame and the blind and the outcast, the destitute, the poor. And the ways he did it was much more than just like handing them money on the side of the road. In our American context, that's what we think that this means. We think that you just throw money at something and it goes away. Um, Jesus talked with them. He spent time with them. He gave them energy and attention and love. He, he healed them. He forgave their sin. Surely there could be no better way to care for someone than to give them eternal life and a new life. And while we're talking about how well Jesus treated the poor, um, just by way of contrast, who was it at the time of Christ's earthly ministry that was the dominant religious authority? I think I hear it somewhere. The Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes. They were the dominant religious authority at the time of Christ's ministry. And they had wandered so far from God that Jesus' entire ministry was basically devoted to tearing down their religious system um, that they had created. Their religious system was man-made, meant to elevate self-righteousness, and Jesus came and totally condemned it and exposed it for what it was, which was false religion. Um, And they killed him for it. But one of the characteristics of the Pharisees that you see in the Gospels is that they would abuse the poor and the weak and the helpless um, and the outcast. And the reason why I bring them up is because, of course, Jesus was the opposite of them. The Pharisees abused the poor. Jesus considered the poor. The Pharisees did not associate themselves with the outcasts of society. Jesus reclined at table with these people and many times ministered to them because these people accepted his message and the Pharisees and other religious leaders rejected it. Jesus welcomed the outcasts and the poor and the needy and the sinner because he accepted anyone who would believe in him and repent of their sins and trust him. Um, And and he gave them more than earthly financial assistance. He healed them. He loved them when no one else would. He forgave their sin. He gave them real blessedness. Jesus brought relief to the poor and the helpless. And not oppression and abuse like the Pharisees. And you know, Jesus' entire earthly ministry was pretty much an all-out assault on these people. Um, In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is saying this to them, quote, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so you see, The hypocritical Pharisees had no such interest in considering the poor because they were so caught up in themselves and how they looked and their own self-righteousness. It was all self-serving. And our Lord here is overturning their conventional wisdom. He is exposing their selfishness. He says, you only do this for the people who can pay you back, who, who can elevate you and honor you. 
Why don't you invite the destitute and the maimed and the crippled and the people who can't walk and the people who can't speak and see? Those people would never be invited because they could never give them anything in return. One last quick example. Um, In the very uh, last verses of Luke chapter 20, Jesus is straight up calling out these people, these Pharisees and scribes. And he says in verse six, beware of the scribes and Pharisees who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Here it is, who devour widows' houses. So in other words, one of the characteristics of the Pharisees and their false religion is that they took advantage of the widow. Um, Jesus is saying that they devour them. And then, do you know what the very next verse is in the Gospel of Luke? It starts chapter 21, and you have that very famous short narrative of the widow giving all that she had, every single thing that she had to the synagogue. So, might I suggest to you that Luke did not include that story in order to give us an example of sacrificial giving, but of an example of how the Pharisees and the scribes abused the poor with their false religion. Um, And the reason why I've taken the time to point all this out to you is because I'm trying to highlight the contrast between these two categories of people. In Jesus, you have true righteousness. In the Pharisees, you have self-righteousness. In Jesus, you have true religion, and in the Pharisees, you have false religion. And one of the ways that this fleshed itself out was in the way that these two groups of people treated the poor. And so, going back to our psalm, David didn't think that this was the only characteristic of the godly, but it was an important characteristic. Um, And so to summarize then, we could say that considering the poor in the way that David meant it here must come from a heart that is totally and completely devoted to God, and out of that love for God, they have compassion on the helpless, just as God has compassion on the helpless. Notice David doesn't say, blessed are those who tell others to consider the poor, right? I'm not blessed up here because I'm up here telling all of us that we need to consider the poor. Neither does it say, blessed are those who vote for politicians who consider the poor with other people's money, right? Rather, it is those who actually think about and care for and and help in tangible ways within their own personal lives who experience this blessedness. Um, The blessedness and the reward that that David mentions here in our passage does not come to those that do this out of a self-serving, self-inflating heart. It doesn't come to those that have some end goal for themselves in mind, or maybe to appease their conscience, um, or get recognition from others. The blessedness that David refers to does not come to those who do not believe in the God of Israel, and who do not have their faith and trust in God. And as we've seen from the other Psalms, the blessedness in the Bible only comes to those who have faith in in the God of the Bible and who out of devotion to the Lord respond in obedience and thus experience the blessedness and the joy and the contentment and the deliverance that the Bible talks about. And, And there is no one else but Jesus Christ, the greater David, who embodies the beatitude in Psalm 41.1 more clearly. So, back to Psalm 41. Down through verse three, 
David gives us specific blessings that come to those who are characterized as someone who considers the poor. All right. And he says, he says this in, uh, of this person in verse one, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. All right, so at this point, I think it's very important that we need to recognize two things, very important things to understanding the psalm. Number one, David is viewing himself as this very kind of person in this psalm. One who considers the poor. He's not just theoretically musing on this kind of man. He is this kind of man. He, he cares for those who are helpless and needy. Because as I said earlier, he knew that God commanded that his children should be this way. All right, so David is viewing himself as this very kind of person in this psalm. Number two, David is experiencing a time of trouble and betrayal and anguish in this psalm. And we'll see that in the lament section in verses four through nine later on. But during the lament section, he is taking confidence of these blessings. He's saying, I'm a man who considers the poor. I'm a man who considers how to help the needy. And so it's like he's saying without coming out and saying, I'm talking about myself here. It's like he's saying, I'm confident that the Lord will deliver me because I know I am this kind of person and I know from God's word that Yahweh protects and blesses and delivers this kind of person. And so I think he's taking comfort and confidence here in the fact that God will deliver him. This man who considers the poor, namely David, in his time of trouble. And therefore, this whole section of David expressing his confidence in the Lord in verses one through three is really motivated by two things. Number one, that God is gracious to those who are gracious to the helpless and the needy. Number two, that David is just such a man who is gracious to the helpless and the needy, therefore he is confident that God will deliver him. Um, and, and, and that is a very high-level overview of, of the psalm. But let me show you why I believe David is writing verses 1 through 3 primarily with himself in mind. Look at verse 1b, the second half of verse 1. It says, In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. And then later on, in our lament section 4 through 9, David is just expressing the entire time details of how he's going through a great time of trouble. All right, look at verse 2. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. Now in our lament section, go down to verse eight. Go down to verse eight. They say, and that is the people that are giving him trouble, they say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Now look at the last part of verse two. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Now move again to David's lament section in verse five. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? So do you see the connections there? The point in me showing you this is to understand the flow of the psalm and the connection between verses one through three and the lament section of four through nine. And that is that David is confident in one through three that the Lord will deliver him from his troubles in four through nine because he is one who is characterized as someone who is gracious to the helpless and the needy. But now, we enter into our lament section 
of this psalm where we see David's reasons for complaining to the Lord. So look at verse four through nine. David had begun this psalm with confidence in the Lord in order to prepare himself for dealing with difficulties in his life and with God's help. And, and that's basically what a lament psalm does. It shows us how this godly man had dealt with difficulties in his life with God's help. And so here are the problems that David needs to work through uh, in verse four. He begins by acknowledging that he has sinned in verse four. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. So in true Davidic fashion, he acknowledges his sin and pleads to God for mercy. And the specific sin is not really mentioned here, only that he has sinned and he needs mercy because of that. He says, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me. And some of your Bibles may say, heal my soul, um, for I have sinned against you. And, And David always seemed so quick to repent didn't he? He he was so quick to confess his sin and acknowledge it before God. And certainly, this is why he was such a godly man and a great king and leader. But David made a plain and honest confession of his sins here. It was a confession without excuse. You know, he didn't say, God, I've sinned, but it was because so and whatever. He didn't say that. It was a confession without qualification, And it was a confession without superficiality. And part of the effect that that sin had on David is that his enemies took it as an occasion to persecute him, okay? And we finally begin seeing the specifics of David's lament in verse five. Look at it with me. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? So what we can gather from that is that these enemies have some reason to believe that David is going to die. And we remember earlier in this psalm that David mentioned a sickbed. And, he's, and he also asked for healing earlier in this psalm. And, and so if we connect the dots, it seems in some way David's sin has brought on God's chastening, which has come in the form of some sort of sickness. And in this vulnerable position that David is now in, it's allowing his enemies to attack him more easily. And his enemies see him in this vulnerable condition, and literally what they say is, I hope that David seeks to exist. I hope that all memory is forgotten of him. And and, and what's really awful is that it seems like some of these enemies are making disingenuous visits to David as he's sick. Look at it in verse six. And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. So David here is receiving visitors on his sickbed. And some of these visitors happen to be these enemies of his, right? And and the enemies might offer condolences, maybe even offer prayers for David, except that it's all vanity and emptiness. They're not being genuine. They're not being sincere. Um, They say one thing to David, but in their heart they mean something else. And David knows that in their hearts, they're just gathering iniquity. You know, they're hiding their sinful intentions in their heart. And to add insult to injury, they use the visits to gather clues for more accusations and hate towards David. Um, and, and, And when they leave the fake and phony visit with David, they go and they spread more lies than the hate towards David. They go and they tell their wicked friends about how poorly David is doing. They mock and they scoff and they plan to do him evil. 
Uh, Listen to what James Boyce says about this in his commentary. Quote, when they visited the king, his visitors said the right things. We were so sorry to hear that you have been sick. We have been praying for you and will continue to pray. We hope you are going to get better really soon. Everything is being taken care of. Is there anything we can do? These words were sheer hypocrisy. These people were not hoping that David would get well at all. After they left him, they said things like, didn't he look awful? I don't think he's going to get better. Do you? End quote. So this is very heartbreaking. This is very difficult. And and David was already in distress because of his sickness uh, that was plaguing him. And and having to deal with this on top of that is very difficult. Very difficult. But according to verse 7, it's not even enough that David is sick and in danger of death. They'd like to assist in speeding up that process. Um, Your Bibles might say, they imagine the worst for me. But the preferred translation says, they devise evil against me. And so they're planning to do him in. In other words, if the sickness doesn't get him, they will. And then what they say about David is recorded in verse 8. Look at it. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. So his phony visitors celebrate David's condition. They hope that it takes his life. They are collectively wishing that David will not rise again from his sickbed. And of course, all of this is causing David great anguish in his heart. And could you imagine being in his position, being on your sickbed, being on your, on your deathbed potentially, and then your enemies are coming and they're being fake to you and they're spreading slander about you? And I feel the need to remind you of verse, two, of verse two, when David is still giving the benefits of the godly person who considers the poor, and he says, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. So while David's pain and anguish that he's feeling um, because of his situation is very real, do not forget that his confidence is firmly in the Lord and that he will protect and deliver him. But while all of this so far has been really tragic for David, very troublesome, I think the greatest pain in this entire episode of this psalm is seen in verse 9. Um, when David singles out one particular enemy. Look at it with me. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So I think this is very hard stuff. Um, David's sick in the midst of his enemies, spreading slander and lies about him. All of a sudden in verse nine, he singles out one individual, a close friend, it says, who, who betrayed him. And again, I think this is the pinnacle of David's suffering in this psalm. Um, uh, The use of the description indicates that this man was or was thought to be someone who was committed to David's peace and welfare. In other words, it was someone who was supposed to truly care for David. Um, Moreover, he is described as the one whom the psalmist trusted, with whom he felt safe and secure. And finally, he is one who ate bread with them. And of course, this indicates this intimacy with him. They shared hospitality with one another. They shared bread and dinner and food with one another. So it's this intimate idea. But this close companion, the one whom David trusted, lifted up his heel against David uh, and betrayed him. This use of the word heel here even has links all the way back to the book of Genesis with Jacob uh, when he grabbed the heel of his brother It was when Jacob deceived his brother and took the blessing that his name was given a negative connotation as heel grabber or deceiver. 
Um, So when David uses it here, it is a sort of hyperlink to that in order to signify that the treachery from this close friend was completely overreaching. It was completely uh, deceiving and overreaching. And there is no indication to the identity of this person that David's talking about, but some commentators do suggest um, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 15. But honestly, I think that this type of thing is fairly common in our human relationships. Um, And so this sort of verse probably found many applications down throughout the ages, but, uh, and, and maybe even you can consider something of what David is going through here, but there is no greater or more perfect fit to this verse than what we find in Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 18. So everyone go ahead and turn there. Now Luke this morning when he uh, was leading us in worship Go ahead, and he just, he stole the thunder from the psalm. He already told you who it was. We're going to go through it and look at it in detail. Um, but Psalm chapter 13. So while you're turning there, Psalm, uh, I mean, rather, John 13. So this represents a major break in the book where chapters 1 through 12 of John, Jesus is focusing primarily on his public ministry where he was mostly rejected. Uh, and then he turns to his disciples in chapter 13 through 17, and he teaches them because only one day later, chapter 18 comes, and he's arrested, and he's crucified. But in chapter 13, they're all gathered together, Jesus and his disciples, in this very intimate um, setting. And he's just finished washing their feet and teaching them this incredible lesson about servant leadership. And he says in verse 15, follow along with me, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. But if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But in order that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus uses a direct quote from Psalm 41.9. And this is the only time these words are used in the entire New Testament. And Jesus directly applies them to Judas. A few verses down in verse 23, the disciples didn't even know who Jesus was talking about. They were oblivious because Judas was so good at hiding his hypocrisy. Look at verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said, to him, Lord, who is it? But Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And not even 12 hours later, Judas was dead. He hanged himself because he could not bear the burden of turning over and betraying the son of God to his executioners. Um, but according to Jesus, Psalm 41.9 is fully and completely fulfilled and expressed in Judas. By betraying the Son of God, Judas lifted up his heel against him. They, there they were at the Last Supper. Judas was literally eating bread with Jesus. Um, he and his disciples were having intimate fellowship. Meanwhile, Judas had already plotted on what he was going to do to betray the Christ. And some people think Jesus deliberately um, left off the words, in whom I trusted, from this verse, because they say, oh, he didn't trust Judas. However, if you remember, didn't Jesus make Judas the treasurer among the disciples? You don't really 
give money, oversight to money of someone who you don't trust. Um, and I, I'm not saying that uh, Jesus didn't know Judas was going to betray him. Of course he knew that. But Jesus says, in order that the scripture may be fulfilled. And in that way, in that sense, Jesus says that the scripture is fulfilled. So how is Psalm 41, 9 fulfilled in Jesus' betrayal of Judas? Uh, I don't think that it means that Psalm 41, 9 was written solely so that Jesus could use it of Judas. I think that Psalm 41.9 has an original meaning and a context apart from this. Um, um, But what I think it means that Psalm 41.9 is fulfilled in Jesus' circumstance is this. Jesus embodied the ultimate good qualities that David spoke of concerning himself. If David considered the poor, how much more did Jesus? If David was therefore blessed of God on the earth, How much more did Jesus deserve that blessing? And in the hour of Jesus' troubles, if his ancestor David had so-called friends who would betray him and try to destroy him, how much more did David's son, Jesus of Nazareth, experience those realities? So Psalm 41 is fulfilled in Jesus' life in the sense that it finds its ultimate fleshing out in the life of Jesus Christ. So, uh, turn back to Psalm 41. Finishing up verse nine concludes the lament section of this psalm. And verses 10 through 12 offer a prayer of petition that God will raise him up. Verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So his enemies were saying in verse eight, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. And David is kind of acknowledging that here, I think. You know, he basically says in his prayer, Lord, that might be true, but you in your graciousness raise me up from this. And he says he wants God's help so that he can repay them. Um, I think that when we first read a prayer like that, we have a little bit of hesitation, maybe a little bit of confusion, right? Um, why, what is David asking for here? I mean, after all, we know that God has promised that vengeance is his. He will repay, right? Um, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, but let's let people generally fall into the hands of the living God, not us. So is David being ungodly here? Well, I think we need to consider this, that as king, David would need to repay people for wrongs done. Um, It would be as if a Christian was a police officer or a judge or whatever and saying, Lord, heal me so that I can carry up and get up and carry out justice. Um, And I think that's more of what David's saying. If these guys were breaking God's law, which they were, they were literally plotting to murder David, um, and who knows what else they were doing, but David says, please raise me up that I can carry out justice. Another consideration. Um, Just look at David's life and see how he carried these sorts of things out. I mean, he would take abuse from people and not really retaliate in any way. So for example, remember when Saul, unwitting, um, let's see, in, Saul, in 1 Samuel 24, remember even though Saul was the guilty party, David refused to speak against him or to retaliate against him uh, in any way. So when Saul unwittingly came into the cave where David was hiding, Remember what his men were telling him? They said, look, here's your chance to deal with him as you wish. 
In other words, here's your chance to kill him. But David refused to take advantage of the situation um, and, and kill him, and, and, and instead, he just cut off a piece of Saul's robe, if you remember. And later, the very next verse says that he was, he was conscience-stricken about this mildly insubordinate act. Um, and so, there are other examples that we can look in First and Second Samuel of David not really being a vengeful person, but generally speaking, David's life was represented as someone who did not take personal vengeance, uh, but rather was one who was humble and meek. So that's how verse 10 applies to David, but what if we're thinking about how this verse relates to Jesus and Judas? So this verse is not quoted in John 13, but if we're thinking about it this way, just think about it. Christ was raised up from the dead. He was raised up, just like David is asking for here. And it is that fact that will allow Jesus to requite Judas eternally um, and all of his other enemies throughout the rest of history. So with his confidence initially expressed in verses one through three, his lament described in four through nine, and his prayer made in verse 10, David will now return once more to express his confidence that God will deliver him in verses 11 through 12. It says, by this I know that you delight in me, My enemy will not triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. I think this by this in verse 11 refers to David's healing and restoration. His enemies will not triumph over him because God answered his prayer and healed him as David knew that he would. And he he was able to stand in the sanctuary and declare that this was proof that God was pleased with him no matter what his enemies might try to say. And the expression literally says, rejoice or shout over me. The enemies were not in a place to, re- to, to shout for joy because their hopes for David's death had been dashed. You know, they failed in their wicked plan. And they were exposed as well. And I think that this was proof that God upheld David in his integrity. And some people think that David mentioning his integrity here uh, as a reason for God's deliverance is out of harmony with his acknowledgement of sin earlier in verse 4. That's simply not the case. Being a sinner does not mean that God was not pleased with him. God was pleased with him because he confessed his sin and appealed to God for mercy. The fact that he acknowledged his sin is evidence that he was trying to live according to the precepts and the provisions of the Lord. Because he held fast to the faith and prayed to the Lord, the Lord healed him and set him in his presence forever. This image of being set in the Lord's presence is taken from the sanctuary or the tabernacle perhaps even goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But it means that he now stands firmly in the care of the Lord, forgiven, healed, and restored to communion with God. So this is very important. God was merciful to David because David was characterized as a man who was merciful to others. David embodied the beatitude in Christ's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. Do you remember it? Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in fact, I think if you were to just write Matthew 5, 7 on the top of this psalm, um, it would be a good way to summarize the entire theme of this psalm. So this concludes Psalm 41. Maybe you're looking down at your Bibles and you say, what do you mean I have a 13th verse? Uh, But 
the 13th verse of the psalm is not part of the psalm itself, but a doxology of praise and affirmation and agreement to everything that's been said in uh, the first book. What is the first book? If you were to go all the way back to Psalm 1, you would see a heading that says book 1. And just as a side note, uh, if you look at Psalm chapter 42 and look right above it, it says book 2. And that's because the Psalms, all 150 chapters, are broken into five books. And if you were to look at the last verse of each book, you would see a doxology of praise, similar to what we have here, verse 13. uh, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. And with that, David, like every good theologian, concludes his thoughts with the praise of God, uh, highlighting God's glory and sovereignty and eternality. Um, So before we end our time together, I'd like to use the text which we've studied this morning to make a few points of application. Um, So David in Psalm 41 tells us in verses four through nine that he is experiencing tremendous hardship and sickness and treachery and betrayal from his enemies, who he thought were his friends. But David tells us in verses one through three what he knows to be true about those who consider the poor. Wouldn't that be something if we as believers, when we went through times of trouble, um, trusted what we knew to be true rather than what our emotions were telling us? I think that is why David was so good at making it through these hard times that we've been reading about. He always fell back on what he knew to be true when he was in the midst of troubles. Which, and that is that God protects, blesses, and delivers those who believe and obey him. Have we not seen this over and over again throughout our study of the Psalms? Blessedness, protection, deliverance, salvation. All of these things only come to those who have their hope and trust in God, and flowing out of that trust have a habitual pattern of obedience and godliness and righteousness. Folks, this is the pattern throughout the whole Bible, not just the Psalms, but it is particularly true here. In every single lament Psalm, we've seen it over and over again, when David is going through some form of trouble, he expresses confidence in God delivering him, and that confidence is always rooted and based in some truth from God's word that David knows to be true. So, in light of that, let me ask you a few questions. Can you relate to David in this way? Um, If you are a believer in this room, Do you make decisions based on the truth from God's word every time you're in a difficult situation? Or rather, do you let your feelings and your emotions, maybe sin, make those decisions for you? And I'm not saying that emotions and feelings are a bad thing because as we saw in the Psalm, David was clearly very downcast. Those things are real. Um, But he did not let those things overcome his confidence based on God's truth that those who have their hope, trust, and faith in the God of Israel will make it out of those things. So can you relate to David in this way? Uh, How about this one? Are you someone who considers the poor, the weak, the helpless? And if you are, are you doing it with the right motivation? Uh, Meaning, is it more of something to make you feel better about yourself or to appease your conscience, maybe? Or perhaps to be seen in a better light by others? Or is it flowing out of a love for God and a desire to obey him? 
You know, when God gave those commands to his people Israel to care for him, for the poor and needy, it was because he is a God of compassionate care. And so I think if we are to consider the poor, as David says it here, we must do it out of a pure heart of compassion, just as God does it out of compassion. In the entire New Testament book of James, if you remember, is giving examples of belief that behaves, right? And, and one of those characteristics he names is this, James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And James says, one of the ways, one of the most pure ways to show that your, that your belief in Christ is real is having compassion on the helpless and the weak because you'll get nothing in return. So I ask you, is your life characterized by an obedient, humble, compassionate heart which seeks to care for the well-being of others? That is merciful to all people because God has given so much mercy to you. If it is, then this gives evidence that you are a child in God's kingdom, which means that the blessings and the confidence and the deliverance that David experiences in this psalm also apply to you. But if you are not someone who has any evidence or fruit of being in the kingdom of God, you cannot just come to this deliverance and blessing that God talks about in this psalm and start applying them to yourself. Um, You must first be in the family of God. So how does one get in the family of God? Number one, you acknowledge and confess your sin to God and admit that you can't do it on your own. Number two, you cry out before a holy God as David did and you, see, and you ask him for, to give you mercy because without this mercy, you would have no hope. And number three, you realize and believe that this mercy is preeminently seen through the person and work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. So if you have never thrown yourself on the mercy of God in Christ, Would you do so today and ask him for the forgiveness and the cleansing and the blessing that David and other believers after him have experienced? For those of you in this room who are believers, um, are you seeking to live out your life as David did? And like the greater David did, Jesus, how are you doing with these principles? Um, I pray that God would use this psalm to strengthen our confidence in the word and work of Christ, that we may live out our lives in humble obedience to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for our time this morning in your word. I thank you that you are a God of compassion and kindness and mercy to the helpless and the needy remind those in this room who believe in you that you were merciful and gracious to us when we were poor and needy, when we were weak and wounded by our sin. And it is then that you gave us faith in Christ and forgiveness and blessing and restoration and new life. Remind us of our experience so that we might live out our lives in godly sincerity as Christ did. That we may consider the poor and the needy among us without thought of ourselves or recognition from others as Christ did. That we may ride out our times of hardship and trouble with a firm confidence in the Lord's provision and protection as Christ did. That we may live every day in the truth of your word. Increase our faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.